Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? David, I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting on top of this moving process with a huge amount of uh, creative productivity happening amidst the chaos, which I'm very excited about. Uh, the album is uh, almost fully mastered by Evil Steve in Houston. I'm waiting to uh, get the playback on that. And I'm looking forward to some good news. Uh, on Monday, Private Midnight is in a major conference uh, about development as a TV series. Uh, so there are a couple of big things happening on that front. You know, you never know what's gonna what the result is, but it's nice to know that the thing is is actually being talked about with some pretty major people who can write checks. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, the writing checks is the big thing. I noticed personally that the creative spark doesn't seem to happen until I'm too busy to do anything about it. I believe that to be a fact of life. So you're in the middle of a major move. You have all these projects going on. I am buried under more freelance work than I've ever had in my entire career. As a matter of fact, I had to, for the first time, take out a pen and paper a few days ago and actually write out everything that I was going to do and the exact hours in which I was going to do them uh, because everything right now has to be a well-oiled machine. I've turned off the Twitter app on my phone. I've turned off the Instagram app. I'm checking email once a day. We are in full lockdown until this all gets done. And in spite of it all, I'm finishing up a, a little novella. So that's just how it works. Yeah, look, I, I you know, I recommend that if you're writing things down as in some sort of work flow chart, if there's any wall space available, try to keep that right in front of you rather than in a notebook or something on the desk. Go dimensional and put it right in front of you. It does help, you know. It makes it more office-y and... and uh, it, it, if you're in that groove, then you've got to just accept it and, and go for it, you know? So that, that, that's what I do. I, I leave uh, or I take down some art that's over my desk. It's all gone now. I'm looking at bare walls. But uh, I, I put up stuff, you know, when I'm really under the gun and I think, okay, well, there it is. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just, it somehow makes it more real than if I have it just in a notebook or if I have it in a you know, a piece of paper in front of me or index cards or, you know, anything that's on the desk is somehow, uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's, it's harder to throw something away when it's taped or pinned or nailed to your wall. You know, you have to make more right. of an effort. So you, it's confronting you, you know? Yeah. And there's the spatial quality of something being closed and up between two covers versus, being on your wall over you, yeah. looming, watching. Yeah, exactly. Waiting. you got to get that overshadow <laughs> thing. Just just deal with it. It's like a boss, you know. Uh, the list right. is your boss. Yeah. Yeah. That's who you're working for first, you know. Yeah. yeah, becoming my own boss has been a journey over the past five or six years. And it turns out when I started, I wasn't a great boss at all because I felt like I was a kid in a candy store. I had all this free time, nothing to do couldn't make myself do anything but then a kid comes along and you say well i 
have to make some serious money now. And it's so hilarious to me that I have all the work that I asked for. The universe delivered, beautiful as she is, glorious as she is, and I'm eternally grateful. And she delivered when I have no time at all to do the work. So I think I think it's great. I think it's funny in its own way. And I just am eternally sort of fascinated, frustrated, and entranced by the way this whole thing plays out. Well, that's a good state of mind to be in. That's a good state of mind to be in. And, yeah. you know, a lot of this is, has to do with just simple energy, managing a little bit of your own mood and, 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 you know, fatigue levels. And if you can do that, then you can stay pretty positive. I think that when, when we start to, uh, you know, to flounder a little bit, it's, you know, the next thing is you flounder more, you know, it's as simple as that. It's like swimming, mm-hmm. you know, swimming, uh, Open water swimming is a really good metaphor, very concrete metaphor. Concrete and water don't mix. Uh, but it is true that, you know, the moment you start to panic, and you can panic for no reason, uh, your heart rate goes up and everything goes bad, you know? Yep. and Everything goes bad, yeah. yeah. Whatever you do, you can't, you can't panic. I don't know how many times I've actually heard that being out on open water. If you fall in, whatever you do, don't panic. Because uh, that's how you drown. But moving to our week in dissonance, I wanted to talk a little Wait bit a minute. about Sesame Street. Wait a minute. You're doing what it did again. I, did I forget something? Yes, you did. did I forget something? Okay. We were, what, what could I have possibly forgotten? We, Chris, we've done 73 episodes of this show. You, I think I know what I'm talking about. You haven't forgotten anything. You're just weekend. getting squirrelier and squirrelier. <laughs> You're trying to get out of your imaginative challenge, mister. We got your number right. a long time ago. All right, uh, all right, all right. So I'll remind readers that David has gotten us uh, five words to choose two. I've explained what the discipline is with that. It's our secret agent assignment of giving ourselves some words that we have to kind of serve a little bit. We, we think we, uh, you know, we're in control of language. Well, maybe we need to be more in control of language. So David has two words that he has to insinuate uh, or, you know, somehow insert into this episode. He was given five to choose from. But here's the imaginative challenge, and this is, this is a real serious one. It sounds simple. It sounds simple and tactical and neat. Well, it's not. I am in the, the thick of creating my own alternative tarot deck. David and I have talked about the tarot from several different points of view, psychologically, alchemically, magically, uh, visual, visual art terms. Uh, and I'm certainly interested in the visual art side of it. We had our first uh, guest, Grant Womack, and David at the end of the show is going to tell us when that is going to go to air, that Zoom interview, which was really fun to do with Grant. Uh, but I'm involved in, in creating my own tarot uh, and writing out a whole new program of um, interpretations and, and symbolic meanings. I've handled the major arcana or arcana, but when it comes to the minor arcana, there are four suits, as there are with uh, typical playing cards. Uh, in the traditional deck, there are wands, swords, 
cups and pentacles. I need four alternative ones. And I'm, I'm shopping this around to the brilliant minds that I know. And so David being at the top of that list is now in the chair to come up with, over the next hour, a brilliant, brilliant breakthrough idea for one of the suits. And I will just say this, that remember that it has to be interesting, of course, it has to have some symbolic resonance. And I'm not going to give you any background on what some of the other choices are. Uh, I've had some interesting feedback from people. And I've given it, of course, some thought. My focus has been on the major characters. Uh, but remember that, as with traditional playing cards like hearts, diamonds, spades, and clubs, what needs to happen is that we need to have the idea resolved to a visual symbol, an icon that can be reproduced in number on a card. And think in terms of like a, a fairly large Samsung cell phone, you know, or one of the bigger cell phones. I'm going to make them big cards. Uh, but we need, you know, there, on one of them, there needs to be 10 of these icons. So, it, it has to be something that resolves into something that is easy to uh, replicate and something that I'm capable of actually uh, drawing or painting. Okay? So, are you clear on that? Just one, and you can give us some uh, other thoughts. Uh, you know, you might have two or three ideas, but uh, at the end, we'll hit you up for one. Okay? Okay. Sounds All good. Right. I can do it. All right, so now my week in dissonance uh, will begin with the Sesame Street that we talked about last episode. If you're listening to No Country, we talk a lot about the mystical and the esoteric and the linguistic. So you might be thinking, Sesame Street, why? Why are we talking about this? Well, I think it's interesting in a small way that might be uh, kind of a door onto a bigger point that we try to make on this show. So interestingly enough, before we did this episode um, and a little bit after we decided to talk about Sesame Street, there was a, a controversy about the green M&M. The green M&M used to have white sexy boots and now the green M&M has regular white shoes. God. This became such, this became such a, a to-do, such a kerfluffle that Tucker Carlson on Fox News devoted an entire segment to the green M&M and her shoes. Now, of course, what's interesting about this is that this somewhat astroturfed controversy comes in the wake of Mars, the parent company of M&M, and Nestle being involved in a class action lawsuit for exploiting child workers in Latin America. So when... When the green M&M changes her shoes, there might be something underneath it all. It might be some kind of distraction. And we've seen this more and more with major corporations engaging in a kind of woke transformation right at the moment they uh, begin to catch a little bit of heat. I'm reminded on a smaller level of Kevin Spacey coming out as gay <laughs> after being accused of after being accused of multiple rapes yeah um so on to sesame street i watched this with my son we watch an episode every other day i would say 
And a few things about it that I've noticed that have changed since I watched it as a kid. Uh, number one, the most recent episodes of Sesame Street take place on Zoom calls. Uh, so if you can imagine it, the screen will be on and there will be four four screens with Muppets on them. And the Muppets will be talking to each other about what they want to do that day uh, while on Zoom. Then, when the Muppets get together in person, all of the Muppets are wearing masks, because that's obviously uh, showing children that you should be wearing a mask right now, which is a whole thing that I could be getting into. But what's one thing I noticed is that there is a segment on every episode of Sesame Street now where Cookie Monster and Gonger, who's this pink furry abomination, make food for a, a child. The child asks them to make some kind of food. And it took me about four or five episodes of watching it before something dawned on me. Do you know what food group they never include in this segment? I'm waiting to find out. I mean, I my mind is racing. Meat. Yeah, I kind of, that's sort of where I was going, yeah. Yeah, there is never a dish that includes meat on this segment. So... To recap, recently, Big Bird went on the record <laughs> as, as having had his vaccination. The Muppets now communicate through Zoom calls when in person the Muppets wear masks. And they never eat any kind of meat. Now, I don't know how much I was shaped by Sesame Street. I didn't know, rather, until I started going back. HBO has all 52 seasons of Sesame Street. And if I go to season 27 or 28, I'll end up right there in the early 90s, which is around the time that I was watching Sesame Street, and I'll watch with adult eyes things that I had only seen as a child. And let me tell you, it is quite an experience to suddenly watch the king alligator who doesn't have any teeth, so he therefore has no ability to eat the food that is brought to him. None of this registered for me as a child. I was more impressed by the design of the alligator, the colors, the songs, but I had no idea in a plot sense what was going on with Sesame Street, right? So taking that and applying that to Gus, I wonder what these initial impressions, these aesthetic imprints that are getting put on him when he watches Muppets with masks on, or Muppets on Zoom, or Elmo asking his friend Smarty, the smartphone, to look something up for him whenever he has a question. It makes me not want to put on Sesame Street, but I don't know what the alternative is. So anyway, that is one one concerned father's thoughts about recent Sesame Street. Well, that's... Uh... That's fascinating. It's it's actually not surprising to me at all. I, I have one answer about what the long-term effect will be, and it's in the form of a prediction. It, it's not just what Gus's mm -hmm. reaction will be, but insofar as that we have any kind of generational boundaries whatsoever, I think they've gone, they've shrunk. And I think the idea of micro-generations is something that I see very, very clearly, that the idea of a generation being 20 years or even 10 years uh, in demographic duration is, is, is well gone forever. Uh, I, I think there's going to be an enormous uh, backlash, freak out about this uh, woke 
phase that we're going through. A couple of things. I mean, I I was uh, absolutely uh, delighted by the M and M nonsense. Uh, the Mars people are some of the. Uh, I mean, who doesn't like their candies in a way? But I think they're one of those very very dubious uh, dynasties of enormous. Uh, family wealth that uh, really should be called to account. But one of the things that uh, I, I mentioned M&Ms a couple of times in, in my textbook, uh, they're a beautiful example of what wokeism, I think, or the diversity and inclusion idea, because uh, those are kind of synonymous, I think, what that really boils down to in practice, because think about it. M&M's, this colorful variety on the surface, and yet they have exactly the same taste, the same ingredients inside every one. It's completely, mm -hmm. the difference is completely superficial. And I have demonstrated this. Um, there's actually a video. I, I, I did this in the psychology department at uh, the university I've been affiliated with. I demonstrated very, very conclusively that people who are completely blindfolded score very poorly identifying the color of M&Ms. And I think that's, uh, you know, it was kind of a silly experiment, but I think it shows how silly in a sense or how deeply and uh, offensively superficial wokeism uh, really is, particularly when it's a corporate mandate and a corporate advertising program. Uh, and I would suggest also that, that there's a lot of the basic fun being lost. I mean, I've known, I know a couple of people mentioned the M&M's thing to me and the loss of the go-go boots uh, seemed, you know, in, in replacement of sensible shoes, uh, that seemed like a lack of fun. And I think that's a really important, um, you know, thing to think about. I think that's where the tide is going to turn on on the woke movement because it is so anal retentive, so puritanical, so harsh, so limiting, so stupid, uh, and insulting <coughs> to people. Uh, but here's to along the same lines in the news, the University of Washington, where I received my graduate degree from. Their information technology department has issued a guide, a guide, a language guide, which bans the words grandfather, housekeeping, minority, ninja, and lame. These are considered problematic words because there, there's a question of uh, sexism, ableism, homophobia, genderism, you know, it's, um, it's very, very strange. So that was one thing I noticed. And then this, what, what's, sorry, can I stop you for a second? What is, what's the problem with Ninja? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's racist. It, it, it sets up, uh, oh. racial stereotypes, you know? I mean, oh, okay. but, but you could well ask, okay. what's the problem with all of these words? I mean, seriously. Sure, yeah. And right. also, sure, I, I yeah. really, really, uh, I, I just throw out to uh, our audience, do we want people in uh, 
administrative positions within an information technology department of a university, you know, in the center of, of I mean, the Seattle area is Silicon Valley North. So are, are the best minds in information technology, you know, working as administrators within the University of Washington? I don't think so. I think that is no, not even second team. I think that is, uh, it's not even minor league, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. but it's just absolutely ridiculous. But here's, here's something else that just, I just, it just cracked me up. I never really watched Sex in the City, despite a cool title. I never really mm-hmm. liked those women, except Kim Cattrall, uh, the kind of you know more radical one who was always you know bedding down mm-hmm. tons of younger guys and just you know dressing up in leather and doing all sorts of crazy things. I really didn't like the cast. I, I thought the whole thing was sort of obnoxious back in the day, but I knew a lot of women who did like it. Uh, but I have not, of course, then seen anything to do with the reboot, relaunch. Uh, and I wouldn't have even heard about it had Chris Knopf not been busted for uh, sexual malfeasance. But I, I, there was an article about uh, the latest episode with full frontal male nudity uh, as, as if this were a big, big thing. Okay, so I, I did I did check that out, and then hilariously, and I just can't put myself in the position of this male actor. I to me this is just degrading. Yes, there was full frontal male nudity featured, but what was featured was actually a prosthetic member. Hmm. Now. I just don't get that. To me, what we're kind of looking at here is the source uh, across the University of Washington language guide, the M&M's issues, uh, the Sesame Street things very much. The, the underlying mechanism is really euphemism gone crazy. That's really what's going on. That's what wokeism comes down to. It becomes a fiercely defended... Uh, orthodoxy of euphemism and I think the perfect metaphor for that in somewhat physical although probably latex terms is a prosthetic penis you know mm-hmm. I mean I don't know how much mm-hmm. more of I don't know how much better a symbol that could possibly be but I I feel badly for that, that male actor because I think that's you know I mean, maybe it wasn't, but I don't know. That's the the inside story that I heard. And I just think, why? How does that work? And that's my question. Why Why would someone do that? I don't understand. I mean, you, you already, was it, I'm assuming it's to make it look bigger than it actually was. Is that the idea? Well, perhaps. Maybe it's a character perhaps. thing where he's supposed to be supposed to be really hung and maybe the actor isn't and so they need the prosthetic. Well, or, that... But it w- what would make it more interesting is if it was almost a sheath, right? That, that nearly matched his own penis as though by putting that on and not actually exposing his actual penis to the world, it was somehow 
contractually more acceptable. The latter, the mind boggles. That's that's the, what you, the point you just made is 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 my understanding of it. So it is a, it, it okay. is not to exaggerate the size necessarily. I mean that may be part of the deal too, but it is to uh, for contractual reasons I think to to not be the actual body part. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, so it's kind of like the equivalent of wearing a, a face mask, you know, really. And I don't mean a COVID is, mask. Yeah. I mean a, a mask of one's face. Right. Just so it's. Or I'm, I'm thinking of a. I'm thinking of a of a bra that is itself prosthetic tits. It would be kind of similar. Yeah. Right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Isn't that wow. isn't that just okay. completely strange? All right, so. Uh, back to you. I, I've got two. I've got two more odd things. But let's go. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll slip this one in because it it just seems it, it got it got some interesting news attention, and I, I I wondered. It just raised so many questions. In Pennsylvania, there was a, a fairly significant uh, accident, uh, highway accident. And a truck was was badly compromised. And there's, you know, it's winter time. There's been a lot of accidents in the news. Well, you know who the victims in this case were, or, or what the result was? Did you hear about this? What? I did. Quite a few, like over a hundred research monkeys, research monkeys, oh. medical research monkeys, escaped, escaped, and. There was a big pursuit, you know, to get them. And then, and there was ongoing reporting about, you know, how the, the, the progress was, you know, was going, you know, in terms of, and it finally got to one last monkey that was unaccounted for. Not to mention, you know, they finally actually did report on the, you know, there were a few deaths, you know. Uh, but, right, you know, right. really, uh, as one of the news reporters said, well, you know, they're research monkeys, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what future does a research monkey have? But it, it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones movie version of The Fugitive. You know, imagine this monkey on the lamb. A monkey on the lamb is a... Is a a, a wonderful idea, and of course, lamb is spelled L-A-M. It's not like a, a baby sheep, but I love the idea of of these research monkeys having a moment of reprieve, you know, through this uh, terrible, traumatic truck accident, and uh, in Pennsylvania, no less. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just it it seems very dissonant and strange that. I mean, are we still using monkeys for research purposes? Well, apparently we are, you know? Yeah, yeah. And dogs and pigs and rats. And the 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 monkeys escaping after a crash is such an interesting metaphor for where I think we all find ourselves right now, where nothing short of a crash will release us from this kind of predetermined track that we're on. But even so... We just get hunted down after that because we're all pumped full of 
What were the what were they researching on these monkeys? Did they, they did not they know. They did not. They pointedly did not disclose that. <laughs> so it's the, so it's the it's the Ebola monkeys, basically. You know, these are the, the monkeys bleeding from their eyes, right? And they, uh, but I, um, yeah, I I feel like I need to sit with that a little bit. This idea of of monkeys escaping after a crash. It's it's the beginning of an X Files episode. It basically. is. It truly is. It, it, it truly is, and I, I, I think that you're absolutely right in saying it's a kind of metaphor for us all where only something traumatic like an accident can break us out of the strange cycle and a kind of imprisonment or at least a sort of, a, a kind of conveyor belt perhaps that we're on. And yet, uh, then what happens when we're fugitives out in the open, you know, and I think the idea of, of being you know, winter in Pennsylvania, to me, that just seems, it seems so perfect. You know, it's not like being like, oh, they're not on the beach in California. Although if you hear the news about California these days, I mean, it's my home state where I was born is no longer the place to be. People are leaving it like rats from a sinking ship. Um, Right. And, but at least it would be, I don't know, uh, it would have a bigger sort of, uh, I don't know, I just think Pennsylvania in winter is the perfect place for uh, these exotic monkeys who are really on a doomsday mission, you know, anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. the yeah. monkeys of doom. Can't get out of it. The monkeys God, of doom. I shouldn't laugh. I don't know. It's too weird. No, what else can you do? What else can you do, really, at a point like that? I mean, I think that it, there are a lot of sort of pedestrian things that we could bring up, like, oh, animal testing. But at this point, every all those kind of arguments seem really passe. Everything that has to do with the sort of pedantic uh, ethical questions of doing one thing or the other gets caught up in this web of, you know... Uh, just one mousetrap after another of ethical situations that we've gotten ourselves into. So at a certain point, you know, you can, you can only laugh. Right. And people who, uh, you know, maybe take offense at, at taking it lighthearted. Um, you just want to kind of shrug and say, well, I mean, have you looked around lately? Oh, I, 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 I would, it's not, it's not great. I, I'd go further. I mean, I, I did have a little moment of just, uh, I, I, my apology for laughing was, was really uh, insincere because I, I absolutely believe it's, it's vital to laugh. And I think that if we connect back to this whole woke, politically correct movement, which is really going to be uh, not only interrogated, I think it's going to be rebelled against like like just absolutely nothing. I think it's going to be uh, the only thing I can I can compare it to maybe would be would be prohibition. You know, I, I think we're going to see an explosion that will go on as long as uh, really as far into the future as, as most people can see it all because I think people have just had an absolute gut full of it. And where a lot of the movement has been focused is on what you can't laugh at. And anybody who knows anything about human nature down the years, and I think this is one of the aspects of human nature that I think does remain relatively consistent. I've been doing a lot of thinking about 
the, the, the capacity for change in human nature and if human consciousness has really remained consistent. I'm beginning to think it hasn't. But I think if you were looking for points of consistency that go back a thousand years, two thousand years, uh, you would find that the attempts to control humor, comedy, and laughter through any mechanisms, whether it be religious or political, uh, it just doesn't work. It always backfires. It just, people won't put up with it. Uh, and, and William Hazlitt said it really, he, what a beautiful essayist he is, uh, or was. Uh, you know, he said that there's absolutely no way to suppress laughter because of the inherent nature of surprise and that any attempts to do so will only exaggerate the effects, you know? Right. That's it. And we've seen that over and over again. People have tried to put a lid on it. It's the same in kind as attempts to repress sexuality. We, we've seen how those have worked over over the years, right? Like, if you make women's skirts longer, people just begin to fetishize ankles. Well, with laughter, it you know, if you make certain things, uh, you know, unsayable or un, unlaughable, then in a way more things become funny because as they grip it tighter and tighter, it becomes more and more amusing to, to troll. Exactly. The instinct to troll is, is, is powerful. Well, I have it for sure. I mean, look at the Puritans. I mean, what they, they tried to cover up as much of the human body as possible, and they fetishized men with big noses and women with big ears. You know? I mean, where did that... I mean, right. that could have only come from some enormous perversion of natural inclinations. And, and I think perversion is, is the key to, to the dissonance that we're seeing. I think that is the mechanism that, that it, it's, a, it's a new way of thinking about perverts and perversion. It's an excessive fetishizing of the reverse of what is, is accepted now, but would have been seen as completely natural. And, and there's just a whole you know, world of people that aren't going to accept it. And, and one of the key elements of that, I think that you're, you're going to continuously see as Gus grows up, is that... that his age group, his demographic is going to lead this charge. They're not going to. They're not going to wear this at all. You mean a fart joke no, isn't because, funny? You know, oh, yeah. He he is the generation. First of all, he's growing up with me, so he is one hundred percent going to think that fart jokes are funny because I still think that fart jokes are funny. Secondly, they're inherently funny. It's Patton Oswalt had the best way of saying it. If farts weren't funny, why did God have air come out of these two huge pieces of ham? right like to make this kind of noise i mean it, it just doesn't make any sense third of third of all gus has been born right after this uh, micro generation of kids that have been raised on masks and everything is dirty and scary and he's going to be the backlash generation to that because he wouldn't have had to have worn <clears throat> excuse me a mask or you know think that he needed hand sanitizer after you know every time we go to the park and play on the swing set you know, so he'll he'll definitely be uh, an antagonist, an agitator of people, but he's also uh, got a sweet and lovable 
attitude. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Well, I think there is going to be uh, some targeting of, of, of Gen Z. I think in the same way that my generation, which I'm kind of blurry, you know, in terms of where I, I, I guess I'm, I, I sort of, I think the, I'm not a boomer directly. I'm a very, I'm a late boomer because the people I think of as boomers are, are a good 10 years older. So that was when generations really were working on a kind of, uh, you know, 20 year sort of span. Uh, and the marketing mm-hmm. aspect, the popular culture aspects were working on bigger scale. Yeah. But I mean, my generation had a little bit of an unsettled, uh, not quite clear relationship <laughs> with Generation X. And mm-hmm. to some extent, millennials, but I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I think that you, once you get a, a, a full generation between you, then things are okay. But it's that other generation. So the so the Gen Z group, I think, are really in for. I don't know. I think they're going to have a yeah, very difficult yeah. adulthood. Yeah, they're in high school right now, and it is just becoming an absolute mess. On the subject of where you fall, I think of you exactly as a boomer Gen X cuss. Yeah. And I mean that in a loving way. Jim Goad has said that generational distinctions like this are basically astrology, which is half true, I think. Uh, as far as the Gen Z generation goes, you're beginning to see them on websites like TikTok and Instagram. And it is hilarious to watch absolutely normal teenage impulses filtered through this middle management, uh, woke... Um, language rhetoric is really the right word for it it's just hilarious where you know when i was a kid we would say things like school sucks right right? i hate school school sucks and they say you know school is a uh, colonial attempt to advanced hegem like you know they have a paragraph of words that they've learned and it is very exciting when we learn new words but they mash them all together and they they have found in an almost lawyerly sense, a way to prosecute things that my generation would have just been like, uh, in a Beavis and Butthead kind of way, have been like, that sucks. I don't like that. <laughs> you know? So it's it's interesting. They're, they're wordy, and I think Gus's generation is going to seize on that and make fun of it and just be like, oh, there they go. What, what are you going to, are you going to talk some more about, uh, you know, gaslighting or love bombing? What, what, what else do you got for me? Well, you know, this is where so much of the action really is is today, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. But one of the big, uh, serious aspects of, of dissidence, not just this last week, but over the last year, but it's certainly one of the, I, I think, the major uh, socio-political issues of our time, and I think it's going to be uh, front and center, uh, the midterm elections in America. Uh, is this question of do par- are parents responsible for their children? You know, this this kind of the war on parents right. uh, or the war on uh, school boards and uh, teachers unions. And I find this absolutely amazing. And it is coming. This this to me, I think, has been brewing for some time. But I think it did take COVID and the lockdowns 
and homeschooling and remote learning to really throw this into relief. But it also, mm-hmm. and the trigger point for me was, was you mentioned you know, that how Gen Z is picking up on the language, you know, this tremendous uh, sociopolitical jargon that is, is being pumped Jargon's through word, yeah. uh, the school system. And, and people think, well, you know, a critical race theory isn't, you know, taught in every, you know, program. Well, that's true. Uh, but there is, there's been a massive infiltration of uh, sociological jargon of the worst possible kind put forward by some of the dimmest-minded teachers uh, who have had, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty free reign. And some parents have gotten a hold of that now and go, well, wait a minute, no, I don't think we want that. Um, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm, I'm still hoping to get my uh, friend Lisa, who's been a career elementary teacher, as one of our special guests, because I think she could really speak to this issue. She has some really, uh, you know, a great deal of experience and some interesting, unexpected ideas about, about the issue. But we've talked that, and I think my understanding is that you are proposing homeschooling in the future for Gus. But where are you on this larger issue of, well, you know, and some people are saying, you know, the, 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 the activist signs say the government doesn't own our kids, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, how are you feeling about that kind of, this big topic? Because I think this is one of the biggest things that I've seen happen in my lifetime. Well, it... Yeah, it definitely splits into two major points for me. The first one being the bigger picture of what you just mentioned. Does the government own your kids or do you own your kids? Putting aside the problematic nature of the word own, I sent you a video in our in our chat on the on the phone about it with a segment from MSNBC where a a woman uh, explains to the viewer that you know, people have had this unfortunate misconception that their children belong to them, but the children actually belong to the community. The words have changed. Notice she didn't say it belongs to the state. It belongs to the Yes, community. yes. Well, that's why I wanted to bring this up, because I think that's a very important distinction. But I, I, I mean, my, I, I, you know, when I checked it out, I thought, I'm not sure I really uh, go for that repositioning. I, I think that that She's choosing to use the word community and that framework in a very rhetorical way. Right, because what she's trying to do by saying that is, you know, paint a picture in your head of a small village where everybody's helping to raise a child and the child plays a key role in the development of the society that he lives in. But we don't even live in a society anymore, right? We live in a machine. This and to think that your children belong to the the cold pencil pushers that run our society, I find to be utterly terrifying, right? Um, so that is a a definite red flag to use the common parlance to me uh, that Gus won't be attending anything like that because what does it actually mean if a child belongs to the state? I think that be- that means Brave that new world. he's only useful. Yeah, he's only useful insofar as they deem him fit to be useful for what they want him to do. It gets very uh, post-apocalyptic and dystopian when you start thinking about that. The second thing 
is the issue of the teachers. Now, I have a ton of sympathy for teachers, and I always have because my mother is a teacher. She's a special needs teacher in a small, poor school in a small, poor town in Oklahoma. <clears throat> and she's worked her ass off her, you know, her whole adult life to try to get these kids uh, stable lives. Uh, hopefully, for some of them, just keeping them out of jail. Uh, and I know that she tries really hard, but she'll be the first one to tell you about the problems that are happening with, with teachers. And I can't help but bring up anecdotal evidence of TikToks and things like that that I've seen of, you know, some poor scene teacher uh, explaining that her, you know, she had to send her kid to detention because the kid wouldn't acknowledge her, her pronouns, right? Or, you know, um, there was a, a recent meeting of a school board in Midland, Texas. Midland, Texas, right? where a teacher explained that in her school there is a, a litter box in the unisex bathroom because some of the children identify as cats. I mean, this is not something that's, <coughs> that's coming. I wish I was making this up, right? I mean, I can send anybody who's interested the link. Um, but, you know, this stuff isn't... It isn't coming from kids, right? The issue here is that this Gen Z that we're talking about are becoming adults and they're getting entry-level positions in these fields and <clears throat> they've mastered this rhetoric that absolutely terrifies administrators to where everything has become reversed. Like, bosses aren't bosses anymore. Bosses are at the whim of these, you know, psychosomatically sick and depressed people who, who demand not just recognition of who they are, but an absolute knee bending on the part of everybody who's around them, including the children that are there. And that kind of mentality trickles down to the kids themselves. So it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a twofold issue, right? I mean, it's this big state problem, and then it's an issue of individual teachers that really need psychological evaluations before they're given the keys to the classroom. I think that's a good, good, simple point that that structural uh, requirement should be, I mean, when you think about it, it, it's just completely common sense that of course teachers should be evaluated because, I mean, they're the front line of, of indoctrination. And I, I think that that word is, is unfairly treated because the idea is that indoctrination only suggests one you know, ideological platform and orientation, which I think is generally true today. But education is about indoctrination in the sense of socializing and uh, civilizing to some extent young people. It's always been about that. It's always been, you know, really fundamentally about adjusting uh, young people to some process of, of maturation and some process of integration with society well before learning and academic or scholastic expansion, you know, expansion of mind. But we are in a situation today where things truly are becoming their opposite. Men are becoming women. Women are becoming men. Children are running the show. No one's an adult anymore. Uh, I mean, it, it's completely bizarre. <laughs> well, if you think about the way that you were when you were a kid, at least I can speak for myself, the way that I was when I was a kid, it was all about your cliques, what kind of group you were with, how you identified. Were you a skater? Were you a jock? Were you a nerd? Uh, when you don't grow up, which we've talked about on this show, 
a lot. When you lack the rituals of becoming an adult, you carry childish things into adulthood. And that's what we've really seen happen. But what the bad thing is that this creates a kind of sewage feedback loop, right? Nice. The crap that gets carried from childhood to adulthood gets funneled back to the children. So those impulses become amplified, right? I mean, I've heard my, my niece who's 13 talk about, you know, in school, the, the, the clicks aren't the clicks anymore. It's not the jocks and the nerds or, or whatever, but everything is about, you know, kind of like pronouns and how you identify and things like that. And, I think that that seems perfect to me for high school, right? Because that seems like something that children would be concerned with, right? Like, who are you exactly? What material, uh, whether that's bodily or, or clothing or, or whatever, uh, what material things that make you up make you who you are, right? But the, the problem is this feedback loop, man. And it's, we've got to get adults in the room again we have to have grown-ups who can just who essentially okay <clears throat> let me put it this way when gus want, needs to take a nap and he doesn't want to i have to find ways to kind of make him take a nap right and the way that that happens is that i lay in bed with him and i hold him right now when i'm holding him he squirms sometimes he kicks he protests sometimes he even grabs the tip of my nose and twists it as hard as he can because he's trying to escape. He wants to go out and explore some more. Well, that's too bad because it's nap time. And not only does he need to stay on a nap schedule for his own growth and development, but I kind of need him to nap so that I can get work done, right? So there's two reasons there. But people no longer want to, to do that, to be the adult that has to sit through the kicking and the screaming to get to the goal that actually needs to be gotten through. And people have learned that. That's why administrators are so scared because the the sort of middle manager, late Gen Z, early or, or late millennial, early Gen Z type people who are going into these positions know that if they kick and scream loud enough, nobody's going to be there to put their foot down and weather those storms and say, "Look, we just can't do this." Well, so that's, that's exactly probably right. the longest rant. No, I think that's exactly <laughs> what's happening, and I think you can blow that up to. I mean, you could look at that in terms of what some of the elite university students, how they behave, not just entitled, not just overprivileged or spoiled brats, they're worse than that. And they're, they're so uh, desocialized to any authority or any scope of, of behavior beyond their own choosing because it's, it's now too late to discipline them or to bring them into any kind of fold of, of civil uh, you know, behavior. And, and the, it's tremendously ironic that they would claim any empathy because they're, they're really, it, it's kind of a, a normalized uh, sociopathic behavior. But you, Oh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's power struggle. I mean, and we, we're just seeing that they learned that if, when they were kids, if they kicked and thrashed enough, their mother would let them do what they want. And so they haven't stopped kicking and thrashing their whole lives. And it keeps working for them. Sorry. Well, I, I, and I think you, you can extend that even further into very dangerous criminal behavior. And I think we're seeing that across uh, the liberal-run cities. And most American cities are, uh, have been governed for you know, generations by uh, 
by Democrats and, Democrats, and yeah. pretty much liberal Democrats, very, very easygoing, left-leaning. And we've, we've seen an enormous lean to the left and now an enormous crime surge. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think there is a direct, and, and many, no one's saying this. I mean, I think this is, no one's believing it's coincidental. I think this is going to be one of the major referendum uh, issues for uh, the midterm elections that, you know, the, the, the tremendous surge in crime in cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, I mean, Chicago has had a murder right through the roof, but it's this, the underclass extension of what we're seeing at, sadly, you know, uh, the elite schools like Oberlin, you know, those kids aren't going to get, you know, they're not going to start robbing things because basically they don't, you know, they're, they're pretty wimpy. But if people have been completely neglected and have no... Uh, you know, sense of, of future and hope and possibility. Well, yeah, they're going to be criminals, and they're not yes. going to be worried about the cops. Right. You know, right, right. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because the, this the solution, as far as I see it, is twofold. So on one hand, you do need to have somebody who puts their foot down, and that can, that's a metaphor for something that can be anything from simply telling somebody no. Two, maybe sometimes including jail time, right? So there's this kind of authority, law and order end to it that I'm talking about, but it isn't part of the whole picture because it doesn't actually diagnose the actual problem, right? It's a band-aid over a deeper spiritual issue in our society that includes a lack of purpose. Um, people don't know why they're even alive right now. They can't figure out what, what the reason is that they're even here. And there are plenty of advertisers and hucksters and, you know, people on TikTok that are ready to tell you why exactly you're here. And it's usually something material, like a pair of shoes or a bag or what have you. And so that's another issue with it. I do think that communities, I used to be very uh, kind of, you know, anti-cop in an Antifa sort of way. Um, I'm not there anymore, right? Because I've heard interviews with people from communities that are hard hit by crime who want more policing, right? They want more uh, order. They don't want people kicking down their door and taking everything. Exactly. So that's, exactly. Part so that's part of it. But the other part of it is so much more complex and so much deeper, which is that people have been robbed of their futures. And until we address that, with something a little bit better than just giving them free money, because that's necessary but insufficient, um, it's just going to continue. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's no question about that. I mean, there are no simple solutions for this giant, giant problem. Uh, but I think in terms of a complete prevention, uh, the problem, the mechanics of it are not that complicated. And I think they are this lack of authority and lack of leadership. Uh, it starts in, at the yeah. family level. It starts at the, I mean, one of the reasons why I was uh, suspicious about that use of, of community, the word community, in the video that, that you sent me, is that I, I think we need to really look very closely and define that because it's a very complicated issue, particularly in today's virtual uh, world, the social media world, the, the notion of community. I started to see that really collapse in my childhood. I think that that was a defining moment 
you know, of, of what was going on, that the, the concept of a neighborhood community began to fray, you know, and you've got latchkey kids and you've got a whole, uh, you, you've got predators uh, around uh, because of that. Uh, it whole, the whole landscape changed because of community being compromised, you know, and that was as much a compromised uh, feature of society as was marriage and the family. You know, people talk, did talk about Mm -hmm. divorce rates. That's a little bit easier to quantify. It's different when you talk about a community collapsing. And when you talk about a neighborhood, at least when I was growing up, that suggested oftentimes the physical buildings, not the social nature of a community, you know, uh, so it, yeah, it's, it's very, very complicated, but it comes down to a lack of leadership. And I think it's very telling that people always jump to the notion of authority and authoritarianism rather than leadership, mentorship, mm. guardianship, right. you yes, know, right. it's always the yeah. negative, you know, because no one wants right. to be the bad guy, right. the bad cop, yeah. you know. And this is interesting to tie back to one of our uh, really key intellectual heroes. You know, this was Gregory Bateson's point about uh, the double bind and its, its involvement with schizophrenia. And for people who um, haven't uh, checked out Gregory Bateson's work, I mean, he, his whole career covers such an interesting uh, spectrum of, of specialty fields that we, we can't imagine. I can't imagine an intellectual being allowed that kind of freedom and scope. But his core idea in psychology was that schizophrenia may not be an individual genetic neurochemical type of imbalance. Sure, those factors may be there. He didn't eliminate that at all. But he did argue that the condition that we call schizophrenia, the actual manifestation, the symptomatic manifestation of that is a response to the sociology, the damaged sociology within families, which fits in with an enormous amount of other psychological thought. But he particularly focused on the double bind, a direct contradiction in terms, cognitive dissonance as a climate of behavior within a family. And I think that's what we're looking at across the board. I think this is one of the kind of the underlying theme of our weeks in dissonance is that it, we are all facing double binds of, and sometimes it's as basic as, as sheer disbelief versus uh, factual reality. You know, things happen, you just go, mm-hmm. what? No, that can't be. Mm-hmm. But yes, it can, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, right. Well, uh, our week in dissonance ran a little bit late this week. Um, We're coming up on an hour. Should we do a truncated week in dissonance next week and get into some more of the stuff that uh, that we were going to talk about this time? I think this is. I think this episode is good. I I definitely don't want to. Yeah, look, I think it was just a. I I think it was. It was a, a very rich week in dissonance, and I think there were some interesting things to talk about there. Uh, no, look, I'm, I'm happy to roll over uh, a fairly major tool uh, for next time, which does fit into 
uh, it, it's an interesting crossover. It's a, it, it is a language conceptual base tool, but it has a lot to do with social behavior and what we might call civil behavior. So it's, it, it, it's a good uh, build on, on what we've been talking about because it's something that uh, children do pick up on uh, kind of intuitively and instinctively, which is very scary potentially. Uh, but, but let's hold that over for, for next time and let's get to the imaginative challenge response. Okay, absolutely. Before I do that and before I forget, um, Chris asked me about when the grant interview is going up. If you're listening to this now, it's already okay because I'm going to put it out on Monday. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, we need to, yeah. And, Please, everybody check this out. It, it's really a fun, interesting exchange with a very cool... Uh, colleague of ours. Yeah, I love Grant. And as far as the book club goes, Chris has sent me the materials for the class. His intro lecture is amazing, and the materials are amazing. Uh, what we're doing right now is reaching out to different social media channels to attempt to get uh, the roster a little bit more filled out before we get started. We've got a lot of you who subscribe to this Patreon involved in it, but we kind of want this to be a a big thing so we're putting a little bit of legwork out there on the internet to uh to entice some more people but i i definitely will keep you in the loop trust me it will not start without any of you i have you all uh, listed here in my notebook so do not worry now as for the challenge to create a new minor arcana symbol as chris meant it, uh, mentioned it was cups wands pentacles and swords are the classics and I believe sometimes the pentacles are represented as coins That's mm -hmm. it, because, uh, you know, it's kind of a money card, right. right? So I wrote a few things down, um, and I will definitely be thinking about this more, but there are two ideas that I like. The second one that I'll mention I like better than the first. But what's interesting about the tarot and specifically about these symbols is the multiple meanings that they can have. Sometimes they're opposite. So, for example, with cups, it can be uh, uh, overflowing, abundance. It can be friends. It can be family. It's often very positive. But it can also mean uh, that you're sort of overexerting yourself, that, there's, that you're, there's too much frivolity and not enough, not enough work. The sword, on the other hand, can be something that can cut. Specifically, it can cut you or it can you know, clear out brush that's in your way. So I like these dual meanings of the symbols. So my first thought is a simple eyeball. I like the idea of eyes being on you contrasted with your eyes being open. I thought that that might be interesting, but to bring it a little bit more modern to t a symbol that I think has a lot to say about our current moment, whether it's with uh, pandemics or opioid crises, authority or sovereignty. I like the image of the syringe. As interesting. A, as a symbol. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So the syringe can be healing. Yes. Or it can be dope. Yes. Right? right. I mean, it can it can be it can be a kind of dope a dope thing that gets you to to kind of zone out. Uh, I think that what the needle represents to a lot of people is safety. Uh, the ability to feel a kind of comfort when they're around other people. And conversely, for other people, the needle is a symbol 
of oppression. It's almost like a missile that's coming at you to invade your body and invade your space and, and pop your bubble. So this, I think the syringe is my is my favorite one that I came up with today. Okay, look, I think that's an excellent response, and it's very different than anything I've been thinking of, and different from anything that uh, this uh, of this very select uh, other uh, group of, of very individual minds that I've, I've I've raised this issue with. So I think you've done yourself very proud there. There, there are a couple of things that. Uh, the, the requirement was that something that can be visually uh, iconized, as in a symbol that can be meaningful at a fairly small, uh, on a fairly small scale, you know, and both of those work, an eyeball and a syringe, I think, can be meaningfully presented on, uh, you know, the, the size playing card that I'm, I'm thinking of, and in terms of numbers, too, as in like 10, you know, um, so that's important, but I, I I didn't feel the need to raise uh, to to remind you of, of the 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 doubleness, the double nature, the fact that these because I knew that you you would get onto this, and both of these I think are 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 very good examples of symbols that can be interpreted certainly in in many ways. That's hence the enjoyment and and the the nuance of, of readings. Uh, but they, they, they definitely need to have um, a binary, you know, a very strong sense of, of oppositional uh, framework. And I think both of those do that. Um, I like the idea of syringes because it's certainly they are on the one sense the healing, you know, the vaccination, mm -hmm. the cure, you know, but also very much symbols of addiction and dependence and fear and, you know, I, I think that's a very, very interesting uh, uh, bit of work there, David. You, you did well. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. No, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. And you nailed it exactly. That that specific dichotomy between uh, between healing and addiction, I think, and the addiction you can have to healing and the fact that in order to get over an addiction, you have to heal yourself the interpretations become endless, which is what all good tarot cards uh, perform when you when you pull. I like very much that phrase you just mentioned, an addiction to healing. I'm writing that down as one of one of the ongoing sort of deeper uh, subjects categories to for us to explore. I've got some. Yeah, there are a couple of ones. I'll just a flashback to um, uh, an earlier one where we were talking about the mechanisms of posterity, how that might work. Uh, you know, we're all wondering, you know, where the future goes. So I like that addiction to healing. Um, I'm, I'm making a note of that right now. I think that is something that I have. Cool. I, I know some people in that category who I think have that um, affliction or addiction. I think mm -hmm. it's a very, um, very interesting uh I think it's a trademark of modernity. I think that that's exactly what I would say about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some interesting yeah. examples of where that pops up. So, yes, well done on many friends. Okay, are we ready for the Thanks. tip of the week, the practical tip? Tip and a drink. Okay, okay. Well, this week's practical tip is a really good example of how 
something that can be, and this is something that David and I are really trying to, to work on across the series and across our ongoing investigations. But it, it's also this, it, it, it's building on the idea of how we can turn problems into solutions. You know, something becoming its opposite. How we can turn dissonance into coherence. Um, for whatever reason, I was tired uh, the other night after a lot of work and packing boxes. And for some strange reason, I ended up uh, watching on YouTube an old episode of the 70s show, The Mod Squad. I actually never watched that when I was, you know, when it was, you know, on in real time. Uh, although I know, you know, the whole deal about it. And it was one of those shows, you know, there are these three sort of hippie counterculture uh, characters. Peggy Lipton is the, is the female. And there's a black dude and there's a white dude. And, you know, it was network TV's attempt to be cool and, and sort of in with the, the hip thing of the counterculture at the time. Uh, but they're, they, they're cops. They're, they were all criminals, but they get recruited as cops. Anyway, I was watching this, and I, I was sort of wondering to myself, why am I watching? What, what kind of got me there? But the thing about it was, because it's on YouTube, because it's an old show, the, the sound was out of sync. And at first, it was just kind of a little bit curious. But uh, sort of, it, it both fascinated me and was annoying. But as I watched, it, it was just minor. But as the show progressed, as the episode progressed, the, 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 the sound got more and more out of sync to the point where a character was speaking another character's lines, quite obviously, right? And it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. watching it, I realized what an amazing psychological difference the whole thing changed through just the simplest out of syncness. So here is my takeout, and here is my tip. I think our perceptual realities hinge not on perception at all, but on expectation frameworks. And the slightest possible variance triggers a domino effect of Real disorientation. It doesn't take much to disorient or, you know, very small little things. You know, you walk into a room, and, and this works across all of the senses. It does not take much in the way of like, oh, maybe a whiff of gas, you know, uh, you know, a change in, in lighting, very small things. And this is one of the uh, the aspects that Robert Irwin talks about uh, in in the book that is uh, featured our first title in the book club. It talks about how small perceptual differences can completely upset our sense of reality. Well, what can we do with that? Well, if you think about it, when we and we're still coming out of New Year's and New Year's resolutions. And a lot of us, you know, have big resolutions like, well, we're going to stop drinking or we're going to lose, you know, 20 pounds or, you know, fairly big resolutions, of course, and 99% of them go nowhere. What about turning this small micro 
differences make huge have huge impacts what about turning that around and really looking at some very very simple simple switches and i think we could do that uh in one of the things that i uh, i took away from the mod squad thing is i recorded a conversation with a friend just a simple ordinary unscripted initially right but then i transcribed that and we did the thing again kind of like actors but reversing the lines wow mm -hmm. that was so i mean it, and, and this was not a confrontational interesting quote-unquote conversation no just ordinary just bullshit and just just shooting the breeze but it was very interesting to reverse that and i think that you know we are spending more time uh together you know we're not going out as much uh i think this would be a really interesting uh exercise and in, i i happen to have a conversation with my psychologist friend and he does a lot of work with couples and he said this is one of the techniques that he uses to great effect you know just simply reversing the thing so you have to work at it a little bit more than just you know then but it's an interesting discipline put some other people's words in your mouth you know think about that mm -hmm. little differences mm -hmm. but when you hear something out of sync it's very very interesting the effect that has on you and try to turn that through recording and through transcribing if you can get a friend to, or you know a spouse partner girlfriend boyfriend whoever uh it's an interesting social exercise it really is so yeah i like that a lot so is it is it a matter of just adopting the position of the other person or speaking their words speaking their words sort of it's absolutely vital that it simply yeah. be on that level that it's not at all about point yeah. of view that is a very thank you for mentioning that that is a very important distinction this is where we often this whole thing goes wrong where we think about empathy and we think about mm -hmm. well i've got to see it from the other person's point of view i've got to walk a mile in their shoes i've got to do all the you know and that's that's exactly wrong that's where this whole thing fails because it's just more projection no strip it right. down to the very very literal basic level of i'm going to say exactly what you said in this context and you're going to say what i said and that's it's just like mm. dubbing it's exactly like a dubbing mm. mistake in a tv show or film keep it on that very pragmatic level and that's where that's where things reveal themselves i like that a lot that puts me in mind of a of even kind of an art performance where maybe three or four pairs of people do this they have conversations go home memorize each other's lines so to speak and then publicly take on the persona of the person who they're talking to that seems like a really cool exercise well you know it's interesting that uh the uh drama department at nyu got recruited by uh the political science folks to do a kind of an experiment after the hillary and trump uh debates particularly the one the one that got the most attention 
And they, they took trans, an exact transcript of that exchange and they flipped it gender-wise so that mm-hmm. uh, an actor from the drama department uh, portraying Hillary delivered Trump's lines and a male actor uh, representing Trump delivered Hillary's lines. And they delivered this to a, a completely uh, ran, you know, random audience, surprise audience. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing the reactions. It was amazing the reactions. Mm-hmm. Very, all of the faculty were completely shocked by the response mm-hmm. to it. Uh, and we might hold that idea over to, um, I'll leave people to guess what the response to that was. You, you can Google on it. It did, it, it raised some eyebrows because it was, uh, it, it, it certainly surprised the political science faculty. I don't think it will surprise you, David, and I don't think it will surprise our audience, uh, our listeners, because I think they're smarter than uh, the NYU uh, political faculty. But anyway, um, <laughs> Right. The dream. Okay. Well, after a fairly hot, erotic, uh, confrontational dream last time, th- this one seems um, sort of uh, much lighter hearted. Um, I seem to uh, have... Uh, I, don't, I can't remember what the cause of the problem was in the dream, whether I'd been hit on the head... Uh, and was having some sort of uh, neurological sort of issue or, or what. But it, it was almost like a kind of a, an episode of the old Bewitched TV show where I, I simply couldn't break out of a habit. A little bit like a variation on Tourette's syndrome. I, I could only speak in malapropisms, you know, like the elephant of surprise. Or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, at one point I was trying to explain to someone about a cantilever bridge. And I kept saying a cantaloupe bridge. And I couldn't get past that. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew I, what I was saying was wrong in the dream. But I couldn't, I couldn't break out of it. You know, I would say things like, well, you know, alligators of, of impropriety. Of sexual impropriety. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't say allegation. I couldn't. And I got more and more angry. You know, I just got angrier and so frustrated. I couldn't, there was this magic spell put on me or I had brain damage or something. And I was, I remember thinking, my God, maybe this is what certain people, you know, like with, you know, Tourette syndrome or this could be the, the kind of reality, a neurological sort of private nightmare. And I started banging my head on the wall and thinking, I've got to break out. I've got to wake up. I've got to somehow shake. This is in the dream. I've got to somehow get out of this. And (laughs) so I was in this kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of like a cheesy sort of motel room, you know? And in the oldest, you know, like Route 66 days, they would say like the walls were made of beaver board. And I slammed my head against the wall. And lo and behold, I smashed this big gaping hole in it. And I did, I broke the spell. But instead of malapropisms, I started speaking in rhyme. 
like rhyming slang without a break, you know, like the spider insider, you know, and I couldn't, and I couldn't get out of that. And I thought, well, this is, this is a nightmare. And I was laughing, but I was so frustrated and kind of like maybe how Gus feels when he wants to stay awake, you know, that kind of child thing of like, I want to do something, but I can't. You know, that kind of anger and frustration. And so I ended up, uh, there was uh, this kind of, some sort of like a, not a swimming pool, but like a fountain outside. And I threw myself the, through the window to try to get to the, the water. And that's what woke me up. But hmm. I had the sense of, of really being trapped in these loops inside my brain. And... I did wake up, you know, with a little bit more compassion for some people who are going around mumbling to themselves and, and just can't, you know, maybe it's, they're not really hallucinating people. They're just stuck in these language loops that they can't get out of. And I think that we're all in that to some extent. A hundred percent. We're all stuck. I mean... Oh man, that is such a can of worms. Um, yes, we are stuck in language loops in in our life. But like even even people who are kind of in a, a sort of mental illness kind of hell. I mean, it it really is just being stuck in a cognitive loop that's feeding you little tiny drips of dopamine the entire right time. right so there's there's two there's two things to being stuck in these loops right there's the frustration of being stuck in the loop and the fact that you kind of somewhere deep down are enjoying the malapropisms or the rhyming right you know that's the tricky part i you know i've just i there's a perfect concrete uh, analogy for this. If uh, when I uh, worked with uh, blind people one summer, the particularly the younger people, but but it, it can become a life habit, and you, and you you still see it, the the flicking of the hand, you know, because there, there there's a little bit of light sensitivity. It, it, it's kind of a masturbatory stimulation thing, you know, and we all kind of like little hits, as you say, little hits of dopamine. And I think that there is that element where these loops reinforce themselves because there is some sort of payoff. It isn't just a pure hell. It becomes a hell that, that gets we adjust to. And it's self-reinforcing because it does provide some sort of stimulation or reinforcement, which is a very Batesonian idea, reinforcement. Yeah, through that. Yeah, yeah. Ties in with your exactly. syringe so idea, you too, of cure and, and you know... Uh, and, and and threat. Right. Well, I mean, it fits in with anything. I mean, if I were to take from your dream and add a practical tip onto the, just tack it onto the end of this episode, if you start to try to look at people's, the things that they complain about, the things that they're afflicted by, and you look at it through a lens of those being things that they actually, on some level, enjoy. Exactly. It, it opens up a very strange world, right? Because you'll have somebody who says uh, every day they get on Twitter and they say, you know, I'm just, I'm so tired of being broke. Capitalism is such a joke, right? Yeah, but what if they like being broke and they actually like capitalism just a little bit? 
just a little Look, bit. Look, I, I think this is the key to the whole uh, the whole modern age to some extent. It's, it's just a giant manifestation of what you could say is a pretty profound neurosis. But on the other hand, it's so normalized and so atmospheric. You know, it, it, it's, it's been completely metabolized by uh, all the developed nations, societies. And it is exactly what you see. You can see this. I mean, we could all know. It's harder to see in ourselves, of course, uh, as with many things. But I can think of, of, of 10 people right off the top of my head that, that it is so obvious that that is the case. You know, that what they complain about is what they need the most, you know. And they and right. it, it's a tremendous like, source of, of sustenance, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If anti-vaxxers didn't have uh, corrupt pharmaceutical companies and government mandates pressing down on them, they'd find something exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because it's not about it's not about the shot. It's not about the companies. It's they in their own kind of way, and this is probably sometimes you'll have people say like what is your most unpopular opinion this is probably my most unpopular opinion and that is that everybody deep down loves the thing that they profess to hate uh so maybe i'll just end i think so i think but i think i think there's a lot of scope to uh to you know advance that idea and and to to try to turn that around i i think i'm in 100 percent agreement with you i i now want to, I guess to do an inventory of that and to see if we can't develop some uh, some curative strategies. Absolutely. That sounds good. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Always appreciate you. And uh, we'll talk to you next Thanks week. Thanks a lot, folks. Take care. Bye. Bye.